you know, the first of the year is usually when you kind of start thinking about changes you want to make in your life. And usually you have preachers give you great beginnings as a series title. And today's sermon about great beginnings, how you start strong, finish strong. I'm going the other way. Today I'm going to be preaching on insignificant things. And uh, so let you know how I'm doing in my life, I guess. But that's where we're going today. And I want to start off by talking about the Apostle Paul. Now, I think arguably he's one of the five most known people from the Bible, probably. I mean, Jesus, number one, sure. Moses, number two, probably. Uh, David, maybe number three. And after that, four and five, I think you could, you could argue about positions. Maybe Peter and Paul. Maybe Mary's in there, depending if you're raised Catholic. She's definitely in there, probably ahead of Jesus. But uh, anyway, when we get, to, we get to five, I think we've had Paul mentioned. I think Paul is one of the top five people in the Bible. I want to go through his resume a little bit with you in case some of you don't know him very well. Um, I was talking with uh, Matt Kaltenberger, who's a pastor up at uh, Grace Community Church. He said that uh, he's found that he needs to sometimes introduce people to Christian things. He said, I had a guy ask me once after Saturday evening service, oh, who's this Paul person you always talk about? Is he like a, another pastor preached on Sunday or something? He said, sometimes you just have to just patch off this poker face where you go, no, it's Apostle Paul. And Oh, oh, no, I didn't know. So you have to explain. So let me tell you who Apostle Paul is in case, in case you're ever wondering. First of all, he was a Pharisee. He was highly educated. Uh, one of the, there's like, Pharisee is kind of this big term, but the Pharisee that Paul was part of, uh, he probably would have had the first five books of the Bible memorized. Think about that for a minute. Memorized. I bet I could do a poll of a thousand Christians to list the first five books of the Bible and maybe get 60% of the people could do it. Uh, especially if you count spelling. But he could, he could just start at Genesis and go all the way through Deuteronomy. That's the five. And, uh, you know, he, he could just do it. He could just go. It's incredible. Uh, biblical authority. He was a lawyer. Now, in those days, the Mosaic and Leviticus law was the law in Jerusalem. And so he was literally a lawyer. And, like, that was the, the law that he could call back at memory to plead his case in court and say why this donkey belongs to that person or whatever they were doing. Absolutely a brilliant mind. Probably the second most brilliant mind of the Bible after Jesus, I would think. He was a Roman citizen, was, which was very unusual. That tells you that he probably came from money, and uh, he probably had a lot of influence in Rome because of his position in the church. He, I think, unquestionably was the greatest missionary the church would ever know. Kind of our first real big missionary, went all the different places. Uh, and he was probably what I would consider the main author of the New Testament. Now, if you count verses and pages, Luke has more than Paul. Uh, but, you know, Luke's telling a story and recounting things. It's a little different than Paul, who's literally writing theology. And so, you know, a lot of uh, what the churches are founded on today came from Paul. But here's one that may surprise you. He was nervous and could not speak well in front of people. And we see this show up in his letters a couple times. In Corinthians especially, he talks about it. In 2 Corinthians, he says this. He says, uh, now I, Paul, myself urge you, by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. And he's actually going to make a little kind of joke a little bit here, kind of. He says, I, who am meek when face to face with you, but bold towards you when I'm absent. So he's kind of admitting, you know, when I'm there, I'm a little meek. But boy, I can, I can tell you all kind of things when I leave. You know, he was the kind of guy who would send that email bomb after he left. And because uh, not email, I guess a 
but letter bomb has a different connotation these days, so I didn't want to use that. So anyway, but he, you know, he, he, uh, he could do that. He would, he would tell him, and like, he probably had these like moments because he would get a little bit, it seems like, nervous in front of people. He couldn't speak his mind that he would later on have these moments like, oh, you know what I should have said. You ever have those moments? Boy, what I should have said was, my wife has those all the time. She'll literally lay in bed at night thinking about something that happened the day before, what I should have said, you know, and she'll work on it. And I'm like, why are you doing that? You're never going to have that conversation again. It's gone. Moments lost. But that seems to be how Paul was, what I should have said. And he'd get home and he'd get a parchment and pen and he'd just write it. You know, he'd sit, so he'd send these bold letters. And he gets a little frustrated with Corinthians because they seem to be saying, you know, you're not a very good preacher. So we're not sure what authority you really have over us. Like, all that mattered was his ability to speak. The better the speaker, the more authority they had with the Lord. And, and Paul's a little bit upset with this, and he, he brings that up later on in the same letter. He says, you know, you're judging by appearances. If anyone's confident that they belong to Christ, they should consider again that we belong to Christ just as much as they do. And he says, and I boast about these things, and I boast about these things with you because you make me do that. You know, I'm, I'm actually, you drove me to it, he says. Uh, I'm, I'm I don't want you to seem like I'm trying to frighten you. I'm not trying to frighten you with my letters. But watch what he says. He says, for some say his letters are weighty and forceful, but in person he is unoppressive, and his speaking amounts to nothing. So he's like, I know I'm not a great preacher. You know, I, I understand that when I come there, you're expecting great things because of my letters, and when I preach, not so much. You know, I, I understand that I'm not this wonderful speaker. What he needed to do was come up with a Paul of Tarsus experience. You know, he could have this whole thing. You know, he could walk. He could talk about being blinded by the light. Maybe have some, some choir behind him, you know, telling the story. He could really bring it because that's what people wanted. They wanted a really charismatic speaker, you know, somebody who could just elevate the whole sermon to a point where it's almost entertainment value. But not everybody can do that. Right? Not everybody has the ability to do that and create an experience. Some people are just preachers. You know, they can just preach and teach the word. The other thing I think, and I, I don't know this is what he's referring to here, but he talks, uh, and this is a famous scripture, about the thorn of the flesh. You may have heard this. Uh, he talks about the thorn of the flesh. Now, we don't know what this is because he doesn't describe what it is. I've heard it described as many things from different teachers. Some people believe it was a stigmatism. He couldn't, you know, had some kind of an eye problem. He couldn't read right. Uh, some people thought it may be a, you know, some kind of a, a foot problem where he couldn't walk very well. Uh, I personally believe, and this isn't, I'm not the one who came up with this. Someone else came up with this, but this seems to ring true to me. I think he developed a stutter. I believe that he didn't have it, but he developed it. Uh, and I'll just tell you why I think that, and I don't have any proof. None of, none, no preacher does. We don't know. And by the way, I think that's deliberate. I think deliberately the scripture left this vague because we have a tendency to categorize scriptures and put them away because of the category they fall in. Like if Paul had said, you know, I sometimes drink wine for my stomach and sometimes I drink it for my nerves. You know, he's like, I have a little bit too much wine. If he'd said that, that's not what the thorn is. But if he had said that, we'd say, oh, this is talking about drinking too much wine. That's the alcoholic uh, problem, scripture. And we'd only use it for that. But what Paul does, he leaves it vague. So any thorn you have that you think is impeding you could be effective here. And so they deliberately leave us vague. He says this, he says, in order to keep me from becoming conceited, I was given a thorn in my flesh. It's a messenger from Satan to torment me. So it came along. He didn't always have this. Whatever it was, it happened after he got saved. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me. 
But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness, and therefore I will boast all the more gladly about my weakness. So the power, Christ's power may rest upon me. He says, if that's what it takes to have God here and Christ's power on me, let me be weak. I'm okay with that. So that's why I think it's a stutter. I think he's saying, God, if you would take this away from me, I would be a better speaker and I would impress people because Peter could bring it. Peter is probably the greatest preacher the world's ever known. We don't know, but it seems like every time he preaches, thousands of people are giving their lives to the Lord. Thousands. Think about that. He preaches to a crowd of strangers and 3,000 people get saved. Peter could bring it. He could preach. You know, that man could preach. He was amazing, obviously. You know, I mean, Jesus picked him as the foundation of the church for a reason. And Jesus knew who he was picking. Uh, so Paul's like, I should be like Peter. If I could bring it like Peter, I'd be better. I'd be a better missionary. I'd be a better preacher, a better teacher. God, why won't you remove this thing that's keeping me from communicating? And I kind of feel sorry for Paul. Have, have you ever gotten tongue-tied because you're so excited about what you want to say? You know, you see kids do this. They come running in, you know, and they're trying to tell you something, but they're so excited they can't get the words out. I think this is kind of how Paul was. I think he started stammering, and it developed a little psychological tick, and I think it turned into a stutter, and I think he just couldn't get the words out. Hey, it's hard. I don't know if you've ever listened to a preacher who stammers or stutters. It's hard. I have, you know, and you want to give them the grace, and you want to listen. It's hard listening to someone who stutters. And I think that's what it was. And he's like, I can't get this out. And I think that's why he would go home and says, oh, I missed that. And then he would write it in a letter and send it because he didn't get it out while he was there. How horrible must that have been for this brilliant mind who had all this stuff? I mean, he connected dots no one else knew existed and pulled them together. He saw everything because he was an expert on the Old Testament and he, he became an expert on the New Covenant and he could bring everything together and he couldn't express it. He tried, but he was uninspiring. His words meant nothing to people. Man, that must have been frustrating. All this in him, trying to get out. So he took to pen and paper and says, well, I can write because I won't stutter there. That's why I think it was a stutter. And uh, he's even kind of pleading with them. You know, when he comes back, he says, look, uh, you drive me to do this. He said, in no respect was I inferior to the eminent apostles. I'm not inferior to Peter and, and John and, and, and James. I'm not inferior to them. We're all doing this together, he says, even though I'm a nobody, I'm not trying to say I'm more than them. I'm a nobody. I get that. But look, I came to you demonstrating among you the marks of a true apostle, signs, wonders, and miracles. That's pretty good. I mean, don't you think that's all right? Don't you think if a guy was here casting out demons, healing the blind, and making the lame man dance, you might put up with a stutter to hear what he had to say? I think I might. Like, you know what, Paul? Come on here. I bet you we packed the place out. Bet you people want to hear what you have to say. But he's saying, no, you guys won't even listen to what I say because you're, you're ignoring because of appearances. And yet I came to you with all the signs of an apostle, performing miracles in your midst. I'm thinking that should have been enough, but it wasn't. Peter even comes to Paul's defense. In his letter, when he writes, he writes in 2 Peter this, he says, look, remember while the Lord is waiting, patiently returned, people are getting saved. He's trying to encourage people because everybody thought Jesus was coming back like, in 30 days, 90 days. They had Jesus go away for a little while and be back. And it's kind of dragging on and people were kind of getting restless. When is Jesus coming back? Huh, if they only knew. Here we are 2,000 years later asking the same question. And Peter's saying, it's okay because while Jesus waits, more people get saved. It's not a bad thing. And then he brings Paul into it. He says, look, our dear brother Paul also wrote to you about this. God made him wise to write like he does 
Paul writes the same way in all his letters. He speaks about what I have just told you. His letters include some things that are hard to understand. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. Like Peter, Peter, Peter's saying, look, I'm a fisherman. Some of his letters hurt my head. I get it. They're hard to understand, but don't sleep on Paul. People who don't know better aren't firm in faith trying to twist what he's saying, but they're twisting other scriptures too, and they'll all be destroyed. Paul's writing scripture, he says. He has the authority of the Lord upon his pen and on his tongue. And he's saying things that might be hard to understand, but you need to dig in because what he's saying is important. You need to treat Paul the same as all the other apostles. It's incredible to me that this was even necessary. Don't actions speak louder than words? Not sometimes. We kind of have this image, right, of what things are supposed to look like, what our preacher's supposed to be like. And if he doesn't fit that image, I don't care what he says. I'm out, checked out. I'm just going to check my phone, see what Facebook's doing. I'm out. So Paul was trying to get this out, but he couldn't. And if somebody had wanted to encourage him, what would you have told him? Hey, you know, yeah, you can't preach. Yeah, that's true. You can't preach at all, brother. But man, you write great letters. All those letters are wonderful. Just keep writing those letters. Can you imagine what Paul feel like there? You can't preach, but you can write good letters. There you go, you know? Pastor Grice, you can't preach worth anything. But, oh, it's pretty in Christmas around here. You know, it's like whatever. It's whatever it is that you're doing. But the, the, the problem is that sometimes it is these things that we're doing that seem totally insignificant to us that God is waiting for us to do so he can use it greatly. This is something that's true of God. We have a tendency to rank things in our head. And the things that are important, we want to do. And the things that really aren't that important, we'll get around to later but I'm not there yet. When we opened Spirit Chapel, um, my wife, who was really kind of the founding drive behind Spirit Chapel, as those of you know, uh, she realized that she had a task she was going to have to do here that she hated. Not cleaning the bathrooms, although she doesn't like cleaning the bathrooms. That wasn't what scared her. She knew she was going to have to become the chief greeter of Spirit Chapel. Because when we opened the church, I did everything over there. I brought my computer in, I was running the computer, I was doing the music, had my guitar sometimes, and, you know, and then I come up here and I preach, and it was nuts. You know, eventually, we, we kind of got to where we are now. Stas took that over, and things slowed down. But if you wanted to speak to me in the first year, good luck. You know, I was just so swamped with everything going on over there. And so she knew that any new person came into the church was going to be greeted by her. Well, my wife's an introvert, so some of you can relate to how she felt about that. Extroverts, you have no idea what introverts are going through. But she hates meeting new people. Not that she doesn't like people, but meeting new people scares her to death. And then add to that the fact that she's really, you would talk about thorn in her flesh. For her, it's her accent. You know, she thinks no one's going to understand me. You know, she talks like she should be, should be on the Rocky and Bullwinkle show or something, you know. And, and so she would literally, Sunday mornings, I'm not kidding you, would be in this bathroom behind that wall there crying and shaking. Because she knew when that door opened up, she had to greet people. And she'd pray for strength. I need to pray for strength. I need you to help me because i got to do this. I don't know how I'm going to do this, but i got to do it. And then she'd dry her tears and she'd come out and she'd meet people. Six months later, people would come back and she'd remember their names. That impressed a lot of people. They started coming because they came here and we remember their names. She remembered their names. And honestly, if this church grew in the first year, it had nothing to do with my preaching had to do with the fact that I had an indifferent wife who was willing to do this insignificant task of greeting people, saying hi, and remembering their names because people want to come where they belong. 
It's sometimes the insignificant things in our lives that God's telling us to do and calling us to do. It's like, God, give me something important to do. I don't want that. Give me something important. Or maybe there's something in your life you're trying to get moving forward on and you're not going anywhere and God has told you, I need you to do this. Well, okay, that, I know I need to do that, but that's not holding anything up. And God's like, yes, it is. It's holding us up because I told you to do this and you're not. But that can't, be, that can't matter. It matters to God. And here was a thought that kind of haunted me a little bit as I started preparing a sermon. If Paul had been a great preacher, would he have written so many letters? Think about that. Our churches are founded on the writings of Paul. The writings of Paul from his letters. If he could preach like Peter, would he have written the letters like Paul? Because Peter was a great preacher, but I can't point to one of his sermons because none of them were written down. Acts comes a little close at the beginning, kind of tells us a little bit what he said, but we don't know what Peter preached. We don't know how he preached. We have no idea. But we know Paul because everything he forgot to say when he was there, he would write down and send. And because of that, we have a Christian church. Listen, thousands of people were saved by the preaching of Peter. Billions have been saved because of the letters of Paul. If he had been a great preacher, would he have done this insignificant thing writing letters and saying them to churches that then we have. And now we can look at how he thinks through things and how he connected those dots. And we have Romans, which is like a theology embedded inside of there. Without that, where would the church be? I don't even know. What kind of New Testament would we have if Paul could preach like Peter? Sometimes it's the insignificant things that we just don't even want to do what God is calling us to do. And until we do that, we can't move forward. In Psalms, this is something Jesus quotes, but it means a lot of things. Uh, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing, and it's marvelous in our sights. We have no idea what the least we can do can accomplish in the hands of the Almighty God. What God's calling you to do, it seems so small that that can't possibly matter. We're saying, God, it's too small. I don't think it matters, but we're talking to a God who killed a giant with a pebble. Tell him what he can do with your insignificant thing. God is calling you sometimes to do the insignificant thing. Not the one on stage, but the one greeting the people. Maybe it's cleaning up. These little tiny things sometimes matter so much, but we don't know. We can't see it. Here's the amazing thing. Paul thought he had figured out. Well, I know I have this. I have this because God needed to humble me because Paul has a problem with pride. We see that in his letters too. So he just needed to humble me. And yes, he did. But God's never one thing. Anytime you say, well, God said this, it's not that. It may be that plus, but God just plays a much deeper game than we do. He sees things on levels. He knew something Paul didn't. Jesus wasn't coming back for 2,000 years. There's going to be a church in this place called Elizabeth, which didn't even exist then, that needed those letters to found the church. He knew that. He knew that way back then. Paul, you just keep going. My grace is sufficient. I will take what you can do. I will bless it, and it will be a major blessing to the church forever. Don't worry, Paul. You're cool. I got this. Don't worry about your stutter or your stammer or whatever it was. I'm going to use it anyway. I can handle this. Don't you worry. Uh, we, there is nothing that is insignificant in the hands of, an ins of a significant God. Now, I don't know if you can tell by the sermon, 
I've been feeling a little insignificant lately <laughs> because uh, God always preaches to me and you guys over here. So this is God's sermon to me in case you're all wondering uh, because of kind of the way that our, our year ended. You know, I was kind of up here January 1 last year talking about new beginnings, great things were happening. Uh, I told you the church was turning five, but this is a pivot year for the church. Remember those sermons? And I talked about how things are going to happen. And um, one of the things we realized we needed, we, we needed a new facility because we can't really serve the needs of all the people here right now with the setup we have here. We're doing the best we can, but we know it's not sufficient. But I met with the uh, vice president of a bank early on in the year, and he said, yeah, you're not getting a loan. You'll never get a loan <laughs> because you're a non-denominational church. There's nobody standing behind you. And you could be doing great. It doesn't matter what records you show the bank. They know you could leave tomorrow. Mark Christ, the pastor, decides, I'm going to Hawaii. Let's open up a ministry in Hawaii and a pineapple stand at the same time. Let's go do it. Uh, let's go there. And we're on the hook for a 15-year note, and you're gone. And he says, so no bank's going to give you money. And I don't care what finances you show them. So that was a bummer, you know, go to that meeting. And I said, well, we'll have to pray for a miracle. And it looked like a miracle was going to happen. And so I kept praying, like, yeah, I kept telling them, you guys know, you guys were here. You know, I kept telling them, it's coming, it's coming, it's coming. And then all of a sudden, I went from having no chance at any building to having two buildings. Like, it's an embarrassment of riches. What am I going to do with two buildings, God? I don't have enough people for them. You know, oh, this is great, you know. And as the year drew to a close, I have zero buildings. I'm like, God, what's going on? I mean, I thought I knew it was happening here, and now I don't. I hate it when I don't know what God's doing, you know, because he's up to something. I just don't know what it is. And I'm like, I, I don't know. I don't know what you want us to do because we don't have the facilities right now to handle some of the people that have the needs. And we want to expand the ministry. We want to do more. And we can't. We're kind of stuck here. And there's a limit to this building. I don't know why, but the limit to this building is 50 people. I can't tell you why. We've hit 50 people across five years like four or five times. And every time we do, we can track back down about 30. Go up to 50, down to 30, like breathing. I don't know why. And that's why I was thinking we got a bigger building, we might still do that, but it'll be a higher number. You know, we'll be like 180, 180, something like that. So that's like, we just we kind of need to move on, God. Don't you see there? And, and it's like nothing. And all of a sudden, I felt stuck. You know, it's like, I don't know how we're going to move the church forward now. Uh, and in personal life, we're kind of stuck a little bit too where we're waiting for certain things to take place and happen. And on a professional level, because, you know, I have a real job outside of this, I'm also stuck right now. I'm just, I'm just stuck. So Christmas night, not Christmas Eve, Christmas night. Those of you who are Christmas Eve know I was fighting a cold. Well, we hit full threat, full-throated uh, Christmas night. So Christmas night, uh, I'm, you ever have these moments where your body's trying to kill you by drowning you to death? <laughs> it's like all this stuff draining in the back. Ah, I, my body's trying to kill me. That's how I was Christmas night. I got up because Victoria was sleeping, which she hasn't been doing much of. I didn't want to wake her. Dog had no idea what I was doing, but he followed me downstairs. And I'm sitting up because by sitting, I could keep it from draining. And that was it. I couldn't sleep. I was tired. I was a little bit woozy because I'd taken every medicine known to man to try to stop this. Uh, and I thought, well, I really need to start working on my next sermon, but I don't even know what the series is, let alone the sermon, because I had an idea for a series that I wasn't going to do now. Like, I don't know what I'm going to preach on, God. And I'm you know, kind of waiting for him to speak, and nothing's happening, or maybe he's trying to talk to me. I can't hear him through the medicine. Um, but all of a sudden, I just felt uh, I should go take a look at that book. Now, let, let me explain this a little bit. I'm going to talk a lot about this next week. Uh, I had this secret book. That should scare you all. If you've studied your cults, that should scare you all. This isn't that kind of book, though. This is nothing I found in the trunk of a tree, no. Uh, this is actually something I started writing in 2010, 
which is three years before we even thought about opening a spirit chapel. I have no idea. Uh, it literally came to me while I was mowing, <laughs> mowing the lawn. I call it the Sermon on the Lawn. Uh, I was mowing the lawn, and it was just kind of, I couldn't get rid of it, so I just started talking to a lawnmower, I was like preaching a lawnmower. And um, it's okay, because the lawnmower's loud, you know. I thought I was cool, no one knew. But my wife was watching me. I come in, she goes, what were you doing out there? <laughs> I'm singing? No, you weren't singing, you were talking. Uh, maybe in talk, but we'll stop it. Neighbors are watching, you know, it looks weird. You know? So I, I didn't know what to do with it. So I went inside, I went, I'll write it down. So I wrote it down, and I wrote a forward to it, and it's like, this is kind of a book, of, but I'm, mind you, I'm not a pastor. I'm not even thinking about being a pastor. I'm a tech guy. We've just joined a church. We were fine. This has nothing, I, I just had no idea what to do with this. Here it comes, I don't know, like God gave it to me and I wrote it down and, and the sermon's called Pay Attention. Well, that's scary, by the way, when God gives you a message that's pay attention. Because remember, he preaches to me first. It's like, pay attention. And two more came, like in a couple weeks. It became a thing, me and my lawnmower. And, and so I'm writing them down. I'm putting them in this like book I don't know what to do with. And I kind of put it on the shelf. And I take it back a couple times. And finally, I decide I'm going to write up an outline for it because I don't know what to do with it. And so I write this outline. And now I'm really stuck because I don't know how to fill in the outline. It's like, okay, <laughs> I got all these pieces. It's like, it's like I've written a book. Really? Yeah, I've got all the pages numbered. Now I just need to fill them in. You know, it's like, that's how it was. I had this outline. I just need to fill it in with what I don't know because I have no idea what this stuff means. And I put it away. And I hadn't looked at it in five years since we opened Spirit Chapel. I just felt like, God, you know, you need to look at this. So I went back and I opened it up. And uh, I, I started with the forward, which I kind of remember. And then I went and I looked at the outline. And I thought, wow, you know what this is? This is the systematic theology of Spirit Chapel. Now, I don't like systematic theologies. Some of you guys know that. Because systematic theology implies there's a system here that answers all questions of life. And I don't think you can do that. Life's too fluid. Uh, but it is kind of right there as I was looking at the outline, some of which I now know how to fill in. And some of which I still have to pray to God, how do I fill this in? I was looking at I thought, this is the theology of the church. And it's necessary to have that because you guys don't know what it is. I mean, I'd like to say, well, we believe in the Bible and that's it. But what does that mean? Every church says they believe the Bible. <laughs> I could sit down with a Catholic and we could agree on everything. I believe the Bible's inspired word of God. So do I. You know, I believe we should have our sins forgiven. So do we. You know, I believe the grace. So do we. You know, all this stuff we totally agree on. We get up and walk away go, oh, I guess you're Catholic. No, we're not. Wait, you're Catholic? I didn't know. Because you could have statements, but they don't mean anything with the, without the depth behind it. And this is, the de this is the depth behind it. And so I thought, you want me to preach on this? And here's a scary thing that I've kind of gotten used to. I'll oftentimes do a series. I have no idea where the series is going. And as God said, you want to finish it or not? You want to finish what you started or not? And I thought, yeah, I'd like to finish it. So we're going to do a series uh, that's based on this book, yet to be finished. We'll finish it before we get to the end, though, I promise you. And this is basically the theology of the church so that you can know what this church believes. You can't, you know, we're not a Presbyterian church, you can't go to John Calvin, we're not, you know, Methodist, you can't go to John Wesley, or Martin Luther, if you're Lutheran. You, you don't know. I mean, we have a statement of faith, but what does that mean? So this is going to flesh it out, so we will know by the time we're done here what this church believes. Some of you may leave over it. Well, I don't know you believe that, I'm out. That's okay, I'd rather you do that than stick here and not know it, and be surprised a year from now. But I hope what happens is it challenges a lot of you to dig in deeper. Because I really think this has been a process that God has brought me to, and I think it can be helpful. So I'm going to read to you now from the forward. It's not very long. 
and I'm going to tell you what the first chapter is, and we're going to finish up. <clears throat> anyway, here it is. The title of this is Why? My writing this book might seem either senseless or arrogant. I have no advanced degree in theology. I'm not a pastor of some church. I wasn't then. I'm just a guy who's lived for many years as a Christian. There are millions like me. None of them have written a book about the experience, so why did I? Well, because in addition to being a Christian, I am a father who has recently become very worried about the Christianity that my children will inherit. That line, by the way, strikes a lot deeper when I realize both my children are getting ready to leave. They're going to get married and leave me this year. A.W. Tozer once wrote, each generation of Christians is the seed of the next. And a degenerate seed is sure to produce a degenerate harvest, not a little better than, but a little worse than the seed from which it sprang. Thus, the direction will be downward until a vigorous, effective means are taken to approve the seed. I guess you could say I'm worried about the quality of the seed that's being planted by American churches today. I would like to believe that I'm a Christian first and an American second, but I cannot escape the fact that in reality, I'm an American Christian. My faith and belief in God has been necessarily shaped by my culture as much as I wish that it were not so. We cannot escape using metaphors when learning abstract thoughts and ideas and all learning takes place within a context. Learning about God is no exception. We are looking to our leaders, our teachers, and our surroundings, and we learn about God in this context. That's bad enough anytime. But the concern I have now is the American culture is not the same as it was when I was growing up. And that means Christians today are having their view of God dangerously distorted by an American culture that, while not yet evil, is no longer Christ-centered. Once it was, but America today has moved from the Christian center to a spiritual edge. We are a nation adrift, and it seems each person is trying to find their way, grabbing onto whatever tenet of whatever religion strikes their fancy. I wrote this nine years ago. It's amazing how much of that's come true. Today, inclusion and tolerance are the highest principles taught in the land. Our children are taught that there are many paths to enlightenment. No one's choice is any better than anyone else's. Our political and cultural landscapes have been overrun with the notion that the most important thing in life is to be tolerant. And the worst slur a man can be accused of is to be called closed-minded. And that has shaped today's church. Now pastors carefully screen their sermons lest they offend anyone. And prayer has been changed to a moment of silent meditation. As an American, this irritates me, but as a Christian, I see it far more devastating. The problem with all this is that Jesus was neither tolerant nor inclusive, and it's high time that we as Christians remember that. Jesus had a very narrow view of what was acceptable, whom we should worship, and how we should come to God. This has caused me to look at my American Christianity and attempt to separate the two. Because as an American, I believe in religious freedom. My wife and I are very proud that our son will be serving in Afghanistan. Went there and came back. As an American soldier, he took an oath to defend this country and our freedoms, which means that in part he was serving to ensure our religious freedom. I strongly support that. I believe my neighbor's American right to worship Allah, Buddha, Shiva, or any other God you can name. As an American, that's the right thing to do. And yet, as a Christian, I know that defending their right to practice their religion is defending their right to believe a lie. For that is what every other religion is a belief system that ultimately is hollow and empty. I know that sounds incredibly intolerant, and that's why I'm writing this book. It's important to understand that Jesus Christ leaves us no other choice. There are not many paths to enlightenment. There is only one, one way, one truth, one life. My God is God. So that's the title of the book, and that's the title of our series, My God is God. And I just, out of 
a, a complete transparency here. I, call, I, I stole that line. Uh, that's, that's, that's actually a line from a movie, uh, Ten Commandments. Uh, I was watching it once with my father. He loved that movie. And it's a long movie, by the way. <laughs> uh, but in, in the book, uh, you know, in the Bible, Pharaoh is killed when, when the Red Sea closes. But in the movie, he isn't, you know. And I'd, I'd asked Dad about that. He said, doesn't that bother you? He goes, no, 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 no. He has to live here in the movie. I said, why? He says, because he delivers the best line in the movie then. <laughs> so he comes back. And so this is what's happened. What's happened is he's come back after leading his armies after the Israelites and they've, they've been led to slaughter. And his queen's just like mocking him as he comes back, dejected, you know, throws his sword on the chambers like this. You couldn't even kill him. Is God, is God. That's just a, it is a great line, probably the greatest line in the movie. Our God is God. It's okay that we're intolerant about that. Jesus tells us to be. There's one way, and it's Jesus. So my question is, are you guys ready to take a journey? We're going to start, and uh, the book, I can tell you what's coming next. Uh, there are some places down the road. I don't know. <laughs> I just have titles. I don't have sermons. But that, well, we're going to start with the Bible. Because if you don't believe in the Bible, you can't be a Christian. Just flat out, you can't. If you don't believe in the Bible, you have no basis for your Christianity. And there's a movement right now to de-emphasize the Bible in the church. And it's be led by some mega pastors. And that's dangerous. Because without it, we can't do it. <coughs> Excuse me. So the first chapter as it's written in the book, is this, the Bible, or how I believe every word of the Bible is inspired by God, even though I know it isn't. I think that it's important for us to take a look at things honestly and truthfully, and we need to look at it also in the way that God intends. So uh, we're going to come back to this next week. It, it's, um, it's probably going to be a three-part series on the Bible. If we don't get this, we can't move on. If you have kind of a hit-and-miss relationship with the Bible, I believe some of it, not all of it. I may believe it, but I think there's inaccuracies or maybe, you know, the culture has it right. If you believe that, you will fall away as a Christian. I'm telling you because I've watched it happen. We've watched people come in here and leave. And I'm friends with them on Facebook. Everybody friends me on Facebook. You guys know I see what you do when you leave here, right? I mean, I see it. And so I see what happens. If, if they left the church to go to another church, that's cool. You know, it stings a little, but I know that this church isn't for everybody. But... I watch them leave for nothing. I watch them go back to the life they were in, is what I see. And what happened was they came here and connected, but they never connected with the Word of God. The songs you sing here, the sermons you listen to here, will not change your life. It's the scripture you leave when you leave here that will change your life. If you don't have a connection to the Word of God, you will fall away. There's nothing to support you without that. So we're going to go through a three-part look at the Bible. We're going to look about, first of all, why... You need a relationship with the Bible. Then we're going to look at whether or not you can trust it. Is it accurate? And finally, we're going to actually talk about how you develop this kind of connection with the Bible that you need. Um, if you don't have that connection, you will always fall from the faith. But I want to sum back up because I feel like when I was talking earlier, I was hitting uh, some of you, some things you've been struggling with in your lives. Maybe you felt insignificant. Maybe, you, maybe there's something you were supposed to be doing and you don't think that it mattered. And so you've walked away from it. I need to tell you something. Doing God's will is never insignificant. If you feel you're being led by God to do something, do it, no matter how little it is. Because Paul was faithful to the insignificant thing. We have our New Testament. 
Would you all please pray with me? Heavenly Father, I pray that you'll be with us as we go on a